Um, now the whole world had one language and one common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have done, begun to do this, then nothing they plan, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not be able to understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. All right, is everyone awake? <laughs> Everyone's good. <laughs> Long text and a lot of archaic and anachronistic names. Um, that's the text. That's the Bible. So what are we going to do about it? How does this speak to us in... In 2017, as Americans or wherever we're from, you know, what's going on here? So, as we look into the text, again, I'm not going to go through everything. I'm just going to kind of pick out some general ideas of what we can notice about the text and maybe how that can actually speak to us. Um, first, uh, this is a few, th few, things, uh, few key things I want us to realize. I have a few things up there. The first thing is, not a, it's not a simple list of names. So we hear this thing, oh, blah, 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 but it's not as simple. Again, when we think about the Hebrew culture, it's a corporate identity. So you might have heard the names are kind of different. Some might even have different endings and stuff like that. So up there, I don't have the exact verses, but I have the numbers. Some of them are plural names, right? One of them is the Kittites, that's in verse 4. Some of them are Gentilic names. So some that are show um, Gentile background or culture, such as the Jebusites in verse uh, 16 to 18. And some are names of places. I think what, a few of them most uh, recognizable are like Egypt, uh, Babylon. And so what's going on here? Um, actually, I'll answer that later. The second thing, the key, the key thing to notice is what type of genealogy is this? A genealogy is a list of names to understand where, whose son is who and to track the family history, right? And we've seen these before, um, in, in, before in Genesis, right? One of the first ones we saw, Stephen preached about how um, the... Uh, line of Cain and, and uh, sorry, the line of Adam and all this kind of stuff down to Noah. Uh, and the big thing was that, that after one was another, they died, and then they died and died again. Um, but that one was a linear genealogy. That's different from this one. The one we saw before from Adam to Noah was one person to one person to one person to one person, linear. We can recognize this too in the gospel. You know, as uh, Matthew and Luke. The purpose of the linear uh, genealogy was to link one person to one person. This is a segmented genealogy. So it's not linear. And so what's the point of a segmented genealogy, though? Um, the, the purpose, uh, generally, when you look at this and understand, okay, what's the context? Why are these used? Uh, scholars usually um, say that it's, based, it's, show, it's there to show more broader things, such as societal changes, uh, politics, and alliances. To show, okay, in this family, these people are more related. That's why there's an alliance there. Oh, th this family over here, these have these connections. Oh, that's why they're together. So that's the point of the segmented genealogy. It's not just one thing, but it's actually a, a, a whole nest of things. There's, and there's interconnections. Oh, I can see why there's these alliances here and there. So what does this signify? Again, the list, 
the list here is not just supposed to be some random names. It's supposed to show, or some just some random individuals. It's to show of what happened from the sons of Noah and how did they develop as nations. Right, that's why we have these plural names. So that's why I have Egypt. So what, where did Egypt come from? Oh, this nation of Egypt came from here. Where did the Israelites come from? Oh, it's, where did the Philistines come from? Oh, it, it came back from here. Why are they having alliances? Oh, I understand now. So from these roots, right, these are how the nations um, were born and developed. And, and this is important for the Israelites as they're listening to this. Because for the Israelites, they were, they were keen on tracing key blessings and, and, lineage, and lineages and curses, right? So as we're getting out of the blessings and, uh, and curses of Noah and the blessings that God has with, uh, with the covenants and we're going to see later and all this kind of stuff, the Israelites are very focused on understanding, okay, where can we trace this? Where's the evidence of our blessings and the curses? Oh, we can see here in the table of nations. Um, so again, I'm kind of skipping over a lot of the text, but the big idea that I really want us to understand from the idea of Genesis 10 is that it shows a world full of differences and tribes. We can see that there's a lot of tribes, a lot of differences, a lot of segmentation happens. Right? And for the ancient audience, right, this text is, when this text was written, um, it was written for the Israelites. And for the Israelites, they were, under, they were in tension with neighboring nations and war and, and all this kind of stuff, right? And so for them, this helped, helped them to understand, oh, okay, this is why we're in tension with the Canaanites or the Philistines. And you can see there that there was even the thing about, oh, this is where the Philistines came from. And it forces them to pause and to reflect and understand, okay, we come from something. There's a history to us. There's a history to them. There's a history to the, that. But what about us? I think in the same way that the Israelites and the audience that, that heard this text, as they were reflecting on their history and their, and their identity, we can do that too, right? As it can cause us to reflect on our own histories, our own differences, our own tribes. Because all of us are not just an individual, right? We inherit history. We inherit ancestral baggage and tension and friendships and biases, whether they're good or bad, and, and, and everything the ways that we relate to others, right? None of us are born into this scot-free and clean. We're, we inherit a history and a historical identity. So, and, and in the same way, a table of nations like here, we, can, we understand the table of nations for us too, right? Well, why is America friends with some countries and not? And for me, um, my parents are from Taiwan. Why is Taiwan friends with some countries and not? I, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a um, not necessarily a genealogy, but there's a history behind that, right? There's, there's a series of wars and all that kind of stuff. We understand, oh, okay, that's why we're in the state that we are today. That's why we talk about some countries that way. That's why we talk about some countries this way. We all inherit that, whether, whatever background we're from. And so with that, because we understand there's a historical background, we have to also be aware of the pains and the curses that have fallen upon countries in history. And it affects our ministry today because it affects the relationships, right? Everyone comes and, and we all inherit a set of curses and blessings. I mean, you think about the whole sermon series, right? It's called Roots. If we're thinking about ourselves and the roots um, of, of the Christ, uh, Christians, all that, what about the roots for us? What roots do we have um, with our family? And so, this, again, I'm kind of pointing this out because I'm challenging the Western perspective that we might have as Americans, right? We're not just individuals, 
but we have to we have to understand um, that we do inherit there's a more corporate and think that um, we're part of something bigger. But I do think the Western church, the American church, the Western culture does um, um, does challenge this idea in a sense that we're not we're not defined by our identity to just because uh, I just because I'm Taiwanese, right, or just because you're this or that, right. So we can find this kind of mix of understanding. Okay, there, I do have a history, but I'm not def totally defined by it. I have to recognize it, but maybe there's something I could do about it too, right? So all these kind of things, as Christians, we have to be cognitive of the fact that yeah, we inherit history. Uh, all these kind of the histories, and everyone comes with a story, right? So um, I think I'm just a slide. Basically, I'm just saying that if, any, if there's one big point that I really want to see about Genesis 10 is that. It helps us to really understand and focus on historical identity in a world full of differences and tribes. We all have a historical identity in a world that's very segmented. Uh -huh. So Christianity Today is like a magazine I read. I love it. It has a lot of good information. And so one of them, when they're talking about missiology and doing missions and reaching the lost, um, there's an article that came out about um, the self-awareness of culture. When we're thinking about going out there and reaching people and all that kind of stuff, we have to think, okay, what's their culture like? You know, what's, what's the culture of the other? We often forget that we also have a culture too. We bring a culture, and that's why the article talked about the self-awareness of our culture, and to reflect, okay, what is my history? What is my baggage? And that maybe the ways that we understand family, food, church, is not exactly for granted, but there's a lot that we do take for granted. Um, the, the article used a funny example. Um, how many of us grew up uh, reading Dr. Seuss. <laughs> so, I think I have a picture of, so this is one of the classic ones, right? Green Eggs and Ham. Uh, if you guys don't know, Dr. Seuss is, you know, is this uh, writer of the children's playbook. He, like, does a lot of rhyming. He has kind of, like, goofy pictures and goofy guys. Um, but, so this is kind of like a staple in American culture, I guess. Uh, and so the article basically, I mean, the, sorry, the story of this, of this book, the whole idea is that one guy is called Sam I Am, and he loves green eggs and ham. See, already rhyming. And so the whole story is about how Sam is trying to convince this other guy to eat the green eggs and ham. And so Sam is like, oh, come on, you got to try green eggs and ham. But the other guy's like, I do not eat green eggs and ham. I think I have another picture that shows that. See, do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam I Am. I do not like green eggs and ham. <laughs> so the article is basically trying to say there's two cultures here. So, okay, maybe, I mean, like, okay, maybe there's allergies in here, I don't know, maybe just personality, you don't like green eggs and ham, right? But, but I, you get the idea that in this, in this, even in the storybook, you can kind of see that there's, different, there's a cultural gap, that one culture eats a certain way, or eats certain things, and one culture does not, right? And so there, there's a whole squabble between the two, Sam wants to eat and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but I just wanted to use that as a lighthearted way to show that we do have differences. We all have differences. Things that we take for granted for food, for breakfast, what you guys eat even today, might not be normal. Might not be normal for me or for you or any, for, uh, for, for the other people. Right? Um, even in this church, right? I'll tell you a funny story. <laughs> so I, um, I, uh, right now I'm part of a missional family that meets on Saturday. Uh, before that, I was leading a missional family on Thursday um, at my place. And so the way that we do it on Thursday nights is that one person would bring a dinner. You know, so it's just kind of say like you know, to divide it up and have each person bring their food, and they could choose the food, so we could try different things. And so one of uh, one of our uh, attendees back then, uh, she brought uh, just like Chinese food because she's uh, she, I think she's from a Taiwanese background, Taiwanese or Chinese. Um, 
And so she brought fried rice, all this kind of stuff, classic uh, Chinese dishes. And so we're eating the dishes and it's great and stuff like that. And one of the other guys, um, he's eating all kinds of stuff and says, wait a second, does this have pork in it? Oh no, that's in my head, like, oh no. I, uh, so we don't know, she doesn't know either, she just ordered it, right? So we, we grab the bag, we look at the receipt, and on the receipt it says, oink oink fried rice. Oh, oh no! So, poor guy. I feel so bad. I still remember that story. So there he is eating the, eating the fries. He doesn't even, he's not even supposed to eat the pork. So there we go. There's a story of where I'm not respectful, or we were not, we were not respectful of the guy's uh, background and his, and his dietary restrictions and stuff like that. So okay, there we go. There's an. Uh, I feel bad. It's kind of funny, but there's an example of how we need to pay attention to historical identity, right? To so the identity of everyone even their dietary restrictions, all kinds of stuff. So that's the big idea of Genesis 10. And now I want to move to Genesis 11 and show how actually these two stories are actually pretty interconnected. So we're going to go back to the text. Um, we already read it. Um, one thing I really want to point out is that in this few nine verses, there's a lot of literary elements, a lot of playfulness and poeticness that we miss because it's in a different language. You know, it was written in Hebrew and the ways that it's, it make and uses its syllables and stuff like that. Um, we lose that um, when, we, when it gets translated to English. So I'm going to try to bring some of it back and try to get the big point of what the author's trying to say. Um, one thing I want to note right away is that this story has a clear rise and a fall. If you guys remember Stephen's sermon on the flood, um, he made a big point about how in the midst of the flood, there was a, there was a centerpiece. How the flood started, and then, and then uh, what was it, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, uh, it says, God remember Noah, right? Or something like that. And so that was the peak, and then the, the flood subsided, right? And the whole point of the, of the story and the literary elements was to focus on the peak that God remembered. God remembered Noah. There we go. Um, so there's a similar uh, a thing here um, where there's a rise and a fall and to focus on the peak. So let's, let's start to understand, uh, let's, let's dive into the text and see what's going on here. So right away we understand, um, uh, sorry, lose my train of thought. In this first section of the text, um, the story is pretty straightforward, right? We see these people get together and they want to make a tower. But what I really want to point out is like, I want to do point out a couple of things. First, in, uh, in this verse right here, it says that as the people moved eastward, as one people together, they found a place in Shinar and settled there. Okay? That's going to come up later. Um, and then they said to each other, uh, come, let's make bricks, all this kind of stuff. Let us build ourselves a city with a town that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So this is kind of the first, excuse me, the first half. So in this first section, what's going on? The, the reason why I bolded the settled there is because it connects back to Noah, Genesis 9, verse 1. If you guys were here with us two weeks ago, I preached a sermon on the Noahic covenant, about how God made a covenant with Noah. And he gave a commandment in Genesis 9, verse 1. He said, go out and fill the earth. Subdue it, multiply it, and fill the earth. But here, they're settling. Here, they're gathering together in their little bubble and saying, we're going to stay here. We're not going to fulfill that commandment to go out. All right? 
So it's, it's, and so we, I mean, it's pretty clear here how there's a lot of pride here. But I want to show that it's not just a, a, a pride thing said that they want to make a name for themselves, but it's also a, it's a disobedience to God's commandments. And so from that disobedience, they start to build an identity around man's name. Let's make a name for ourselves, and, a name, and they put their identity in the, uh, man's name and ability. And from that, they believe that, okay, from our name, we're going to have security, we'll have recognition, and we'll be okay. You, uh, actually, can we go back to the text really quick? Um, so, and, and there's an idea that there's a sense of fear, too. Other, at the very end, they say, otherwise, if we don't build this name, otherwise we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So they're trying to find, because of the fear and anxiety and the pride and all that kind of stuff, they're trying to say, okay, we're going to put our security in our name. We're going to put a security in man's thing and what we can do. Let's build a tower together. So that's the first half. And so now I want to jump into the second half. And the peak is right here in verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. So we have this uprise of man, but now we're going to see what the Lord does at here. The Lord comes down and looks at this. Let's just read it again, and then I'm going to go to the next slide. Uh, but the Lord came down to see the city, the tower people were building. The Lord said, if as, if, as one people keep, uh, if as one people speak in the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse the language so they will not understand each other. Uh, we can go to the next slide. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. We go to the next slide. I just kind of want to talk about how in this second half, there's multiple levels of irony. Multiple levels. And this is where some of the literary stuff comes in. First of all, there's parallel verses. I, I, I think this makes sense. If this doesn't make sense, basically you want to look at verse 1 and verse 9. They see that they're the same thing. They're talking about the same thing, right? All the earth has one language. Um, and then verse 9, confuse the language of the whole earth, right? So that's kind of like starting at the beginning and the end, the, the parallel. And then verse 2 and verse 8, they settled there. They scattered there. There's an idea of movement and a verb there, right? Verse 3 and verse 7, come. The man says, come, let us make bricks. And verse 7 is God saying, come, let us confuse. And so I didn't include the entire table. There's a whole, there's a whole like, you could look through it all. But you can understand that it's... And so kind of, it's, it's parallel verses because it shows a reversal of what man is trying to do, and then it comes right back, right? Even the syllables um, sound to reverse. Again, something about, I, I haven't taken Hebrew yet. <laughs> talk to me in a few months after I understand Hebrew. Or you can talk to Dan, you know. <laughs> but, uh, so one thing, I was reading the commentary, reading the, the articles and stuff like that, so I just want to show one thing that I thought, I thought was pretty cool. The, the two commandments, I mean, the two, like, things that they say, the, the proclamations, right? The man says, let us make bricks. And in Hebrew, I don't know, I don't know how to pronounce it right, but it says, new bena levenin, right? Let us make bricks. But God says, nabela, let us confuse. So I kind of, I don't know if you can see, I bolded the, the sounds, the syllables. So L-B-N, let us make bricks, becomes N-B-L, let us confuse. So yeah, this is like small stuff. And again, this is, as the, as the, the stories are being uh, told to the Israelites, all that kind of stuff, they're going to recognize, oh, okay, yeah, I can see. Um, there's this kind of like, there's kind of this, um, they're hinting at these different ways of how there's irony in the text. Um, and the last thing, of course, I mean, we can understand too, the people didn't want to scatter, but then they scattered. That's ironic, right? 
Okay, why did I go through all this? I just want to show that I can be a scholar and be a good pastor. No, I'm just kidding. I just want to understand, I didn't understand the text and I understand, okay, why is it so confusing? Why do they talk about bricks? Why do they talk about that? Well, again, they talk about bricks because the author's trying to be playful and trying to do things like the, the syllable things, right? Why is this and that? So, again, we might not fully understand the Hebrew culture and all that's going on here, but the main idea that the author's trying to get to us and that we can understand here in 2017 is that there's irony. Right? There's an irony of the text. The man tries to build, but then God takes it down. Anything that comes up will come down. Uh, anything that's, um, when, that a man tries to push forward, God can reverse. Um, and it's the idea that why would God reverse? Well, God will not let unchecked hubris, um, he will not let sinful hubris go unchecked, that's what I want to say. So after a while, God will let it go, but at a certain point, God's patience will end and say, I will not let this sinful hubris go in check, and we reverse it and bring it back. And so because of man's sin, the language is confused. And so you guys couldn't understand me in the beginning. <laughs> because of that, there's a fragmentation, right? Man is scattered, and something that's so fundamental as language now divides so many of us. It divides even the church. We have English services or Spanish services or Chinese churches, and so we even feel the ripples of the sin that happened here and how that sin fragmented us. It also proves the fact that God gets the final say. This, this text shows that no matter what man can do, God gets the final say. No matter how big the tower you build, no matter how big the city, no matter how powerful man is, God gets the final say. It's funny, uh, so it's like a, even in the text, you know, man builds this super high tower, but the text says the Lord has still had to come down. And no matter how high we build, the Lord still has to come down to meet us wherever we go. Um, and if anything, this also explains the scattering of Genesis 10. So I know chronologically, again, uh, as Westerners and as American myself, we like to read things linearly, but um, Genesis 10 and 11 kind of pair up. And so often, when we look at this text, the scholars believe that Genesis 11 explains why Genesis 10 has all these different scatterings, of why things go out and all this kind of stuff. Um, I think a good parallel is, if you read Genesis 1 and 2, it's the same creation thing, right? It's the same, sorry, same, creation, thing, same creation story. Sorry. But... Genesis 1 goes through it, and then Genesis 2 goes back and kind of explains it more, and maybe in a more detailed perspective, all kind of stuff. That's kind of the same idea, how Genesis 11 explains why there's segmentation, why there's so many different tribes and differences back in Genesis 10. So that's very important how they, they're, they're very uh, interconnected, that's what we're saying. Okay, yeah. And I forgot what, what, was, what was the next one. Oh, yeah, here it is. So this is the big point I really want to show. What can we learn from this? Well, it's up there on the slide. That when we put our identity, our primary identity, in ourselves, into man, into tribes, into all these different things, it's going to cause division. It's going to cause fragmentation, right? If we have that pride, it's just going to divide us even more. And the biggest division that we see in this text is between man and God. And man wants to put himself so high it's sin and it divides him against God. 
And I think the big idea, the big lesson that we can learn here is that God desires for us to put our primary identity in God and God alone. God desires for us to put our primary identity in Him. I'm not saying we just forget about anything about your skin color or your culture or your parents or anything like that. That is all part of you. That's all important. So we're not going to forget about that. But all these things, um, they, can't, they must be secondary to a primary identity that's found in God, in obedience to God. Right? So God doesn't wash away your culture and all that stuff, but God just transcends it. He's first in it. And if we don't, though, right, if, we put, if I put my identity as a Taiwanese Asian American, if I put my identity as a millennial or whatever we want to say, right, it'll only, it, it's only going to cause pride. It's only going to cause division. It's going to only separate me from you. It's only going to cause me to sin against you guys and anyone else who's not of my little group and bubble, right? We're going to build towers. We're going to build cities. And think that we, we might even think that we're praising God. Wow, like, look at this. Look at how great things I can do for you, God. But if we're putting ourselves, or putting our power, our ability above God, then we fail. And we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping ourselves. Um, I think uh, when it comes to, I think, um, I, because of my background, I have connections to the Chinese church. And so I, I kind of have this kind of interesting tension, and I don't know if, some of you guys might share this too, of how at Mosaic, I love the vision. I'm here and I'm serving because I want to see God's kingdom be filled with diversity. Then I go back and I see, okay, there's still a need for the immigrant church in some in mono-ethnic places to reach immigrants or people because of the language and stuff like that. Um, but I would say, again, I'm not, I don't want I'm not, I'm not, to, I'm not trying to judge the ethnic churches or anything like that. But one, one challenge I have for those of ethnic churches, of mono-ethnic churches, is that they sometimes seem to put their ethnic identity above their God-given identity, right? So I'm just going to talk about my own people. Like, so there's a, it's a Chinese church. It's a Chinese Christian church. And so it seems like for them, the Chinese culture and their Chinese identity is much more important and even above their, their Christ-given identity. And so I, I just have to ask them, would they welcome a Christian if it's not Chinese? Would, I, would they welcome a Christian if it's not the same identity, right? Um, so that's something to grapple with, even for ourselves. Do, are we going to welcome people that are different from us, from different skin colors or different uh, cultures or different generations? Um, it's tough, and even we struggle that as that as Mosaic. I'm going to tell a story. Um, is uh, so. Again, this is not, when I tell this story, it's, it is a challenge, I think, and it's not a indictment towards the pastors or us or anything like that. I'm just going to tell you, basically, a short story of what I experienced here at Mosaic. Um, on the first service, um, after everything is done, we had a great first service, right? Mosaic grand opening, all that kind of stuff. And I remember standing right over there at the, you know, the, the closet over there. We're packing up. We're finishing all that kind of stuff. And so back then, at that time, I believe I was... I believe I was the, oh, now I think about it. I, I believe I was the only Asian, or at least the only East Asian. Um, and so as I'm exiting the closet, as I'm packing up, I walk out, and I look to my left, and it's a, it's a group of white people. Uh, sorry, I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> I, I said it, I was like, whoa, shoot, that sounds bad. <laughs> sorry. You can say Asian people. <laughs> okay, it's all right, it's all right. Eh, forgive me. I'm going to say Caucasian. Oh, God. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, Mustang. Oh yeah, multi-epic church, right? Okay. So I look left, it's a bunch of light-skinned, white, Caucasian people, right? Oh shoot, I didn't mean for the story to be funny, but turned out to be funny. So I look left, okay, those people. I look right, can I say, I saw black people, right? African Americans, Caribbeans, all that kind of stuff. And so, <laughs> this was not supposed to be funny, but now it's funny. <laughs> so for me, I, I actually felt really left out though, right? So here's the service, and we have this all kind of things. And I see a group of people who have come together, and they have the same skin color, and they're together. And I see a bunch of other people that have the same skin color, and they're together, right? Or the same culture, and all that kind of stuff, right? What about me? I didn't really fit either of them. So I just kind of stood there. I didn't really know what to do. And in that sense, I saw that even in the church, even as and we're trying to strive for a multi-ethnic identity, we even still have bubbles too. Now I want to say, that's like three years ago. I think we've gone so far from that, right? I'm sure we've struggled with that. Uh, anyone who's been here from the beginning knows that we've definitely gone through a lot. Um, and I definitely feel at home here. This is, this is my family here. But I just wanted to give that light story of something that happened three years ago, and that even in this church, we can have, uh, we can have struggle with identity. We can put uh, even other things as a primary identity instead of a Christian identity. Because if we didn't have a Christian identity as first, we would interact beyond our skin colors and our ethnicities and stuff like that. I kind of want to, I'm going to tell another quick story. I say that, but the funny thing is, I did the same thing. Okay, uh, a few weeks ago, David Phelps and Emily Phelps, um, they, they were two um, wonderful part, parts of our church. They, for such a long time, we had kept this kind of thing where, um, I don't know if you guys remember, uh, we all came up, we kind of shared something, and I shared about how David uh, laughed really loudly, right? I don't know if you guys remember my story about how I always really enjoyed David's energy and all that kind of things. So that story that I was referring to, we were, in the, we were having a dinner in the back. We love to have those kind of things. Um, and I, I remember that story so vividly, because as we were eating and all that kind of stuff, um, David laughed. I was like, whoa, what the heck going on? I looked over and I see David, and he's laughing, he's hanging out, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, but then, at that moment, I was just, I saw David, he was hanging out. So David's Caucasian, or white, I don't know what's the best way to put it. But, but he was talking to two people that were, I think, two black women or two Caribbean women. I, I don't really know them. But in that sense, I saw, wow, David is reaching out. David's reaching people who are different culture and different skin color from him. And then I looked at myself, and I realized, Oh my gosh. At that moment, I was talking to a few other individuals that were all Asian. And I realized, oh my gosh, I did the same exact thing that I saw when I was over there and I saw the, the two groups. And so I just want to say that all of us can be susceptible to getting into our bubbles and getting comfortable to our own ethnic identities or all that kind of stuff, even me. So I'm not, I didn't want to just say white people, black people, but Asian people too, Hispanic people, whatever. So we're all this together, right? That's the whole thing. <laughs> so again, okay, what was the whole point of that? Put God as your primary identity, even above any other identity. Um, so what about us? What about us now? There's one last thing I do want to talk about before I close the sermon. We live in a very fragmented world. There's no, there's no doubt about that. And I think even nowadays when we understand things like Black Lives Matter and all these kind of racial issues and all this kind of stuff, things about sexuality. There's a lot of division that can happen um, in our city, uh, in, in, our, in our lives. Um, how do we get to put God as primary when there's so much identity issues? How do we get there? I mean, this story ends pretty bleak. When I'm talking about the Tower of Babel, right? Um, usually the story ends with something like, like 
something a little nice. At the end of the Garden of Eden, God gives clothes to the naked sinners, right? At the very end of Cain's murder, God puts a protective mark. Um, at the very end of Noah's story, there's a rainbow, something nice. But there's nothing here, right? It's really bleak. It's really dark. I mean, what hope do we have? We live in a fragmented state, and we can depend less and less on ourselves. We don't have the same language. We have cultures that are dividing us. Histories, baggage, culture, we just, it's just so broken. And so when we're in this fragmented world and all these kind of divisions, what hope do we have? What about the one creator God who speaks all languages and permeates all cultures? What about the one God who can reach all different types of people? No matter your language, no matter your background, no matter your culture. In order for this to work out, in order for God to bring his people back to him, God needs to break some hard walls down, literally and figuratively in our hearts too, right? And so when God broke the people, when God breaks people apart, all these people now, they can't depend on their culture anymore. They can't depend on their tribes anymore. They can't depend on any when it comes to man. The only thing they can depend on is the one God who can connect all of them. Is the one God who can unify all of them, who can speak all their languages, right? But how is he going to do that? How can he unify us all? If we're spread out with all our cultures and languages, well, <laughs> what did God do? Well, God stepped into the world, right? God stepped into a culture. God stepped into the language. He spoke Aramaic. He spoke Hebrew. He spoke Greek. He became one of us. He loved us. He loved all types of people. Not just the Jews, but the Samaritans and the Romans. Not just men, but women too, and children. And he fully proved his love for us by dying on the cross. For people of all cultures, he proved that love for us by dying on the cross. He broke his body and took all the curses. All the curses of, that were here that we read, the curses that we'll see in the rest of the Bible. He took it all upon himself. Why? So that we could go back home. So we could finally have our primary identity back as in, in God and Jesus, right? We're entering one final new tribe, and it's the identity of Jesus. And so if we want that, if we want to put our primary identity in God, we're going to need to be broken too. Because all of us have pride, right? All of us have ways to put other things as a primary identity instead of God, right? So we will also need to experience brokenness. We are willing to submit and say, you know what? My Taiwanese background is not enough. My millennial background is not enough. It's all going to break. It's all going to fall. And it's nothing. I can't build a tower that's high enough to reach the heavens. It can only be God. It can only be Jesus can only be my primary identity if I want to go back home, if I want to be with God again. So, oh, there we go. In order for us to put God as our primary identity, God needs to break us and recreate us in Jesus. That's the only way. I'm just going to tell a quick testimony about how I became a Christian. So I grew up actually in a church, a Chinese church. And for me... This, this, I guess I'm really speaking out of my own heart, my own story, because when I, when I started to take God seriously, I really believed that 
in order to, to, to be blessed and to be loved by God, I had to work hard. I had to prove to God that I could be good enough. Because the Bible says you got to be good. you got to follow the law and all that kind of stuff. So, okay, if I can do good things, then God will bless me, right? If I can just work hard enough, then if I go to church and I read the Bible every day, and I start reading the Bible every day, I start to pray, you know, God will bless me. God will give me a good grade in school, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's the relationship I had with God. I mean, the problem was that I was not perfect. And I definitely sinned. And I sinned all the time. So I, in my mind, I was so scared of God, too. I understood the separation that my sin put me between me and my God. And every time I sinned, I was so scared that God was going to curse me, that God was going to give me, you know, a fight, or I was going to lose something important. I was going to lose my phone or something like that. It was just horrible. It was just a horrible way to live, just be in perpetual, uh, like a game with God. And I just have to work hard enough, and then God gives me good things, and I just do bad stuff, and God punishes me. And I learned quickly that I cannot do it. Well, actually, sorry, I didn't learn quickly. I, I, I learned very slowly. I, um, I tried for so many years, and eventually I just said, you know what, I'm done. I screwed this. Um, and I just gave it up. I just gave up religion. I gave up faith. I screwed it. And I didn't want to believe in God anymore. And it wasn't until um, when I came to college, as, as a broken individual, as a time where I had no friends in college, and I was, as a freshman, I didn't have my family. I didn't have anything. Um, I didn't even have my God anymore, though, or at least whatever I perceived as God. Um, I was so broken and so vulnerable. And it was at that moment that a Christian community picked me up and invited me, and, and invited me to a men's small group, uh, their fellowship, and all of these kind of things. And they accepted me, and they loved me, even when we talked about uh, our backgrounds and all this kind of stuff. And it was there when I finally understood the gospel. That's not by my own ability that I get into heaven, but it's my identity in Jesus. That if I put my primary identity in Jesus and what he's done and the grace that he's done, uh, the grace that he has for us, um, that's the way I can get the blessings of God. That's the way I can be with God again. And all those curses that have put on the cross for me so I can be free. And so that's the, that's the gospel and that's the story for not just for me, but for all of us. So wherever you are, if you're a Christian, I hope that refreshes you to understand that um, your primary identity is, is freedom. It's for you guys, you don't have to chain yourselves to a law anymore that we have our primary identity in Jesus. And if you don't have your primary identity in Jesus, I would offer that there is freedom in Christ. There's freedom that you don't need to hold on to these, um, all these all this baggage and all this kind of stuff that you can surrender to Jesus. Him alone. Um, but it does require us to be broken. It's to surrender our, all these secondary identities. So, as I close up, um, I just have some application for us. Uh, okay, there we go. Uh, so if you guys should have uh, one of these response cards, if it's your first time, we'd love to get to know you, and you can fill it out. But what I'm really want to focus on right now is the back. And so there's prayer requests, uh, things to get involved, but on the top left is these different application points. So again, I don't, want, I don't ever want us to come to church and just have a good time and just, you know, then just forget everything, but I want us to be changed. I want us to go out there and be commissioned. Um, by God, to live a holier life, a life that's closer to God. So I have these four ideas. You, not, you guys are not limited to it. If you guys have other ideas, feel free to go forward. Now, these are four ideas I want to give to you guys in response to Genesis 10 and 11. First thing is I will learn about my own background. It doesn't seem that spiritual, right? It's not like reading the Bible ten times a day or anything like that. But I do think that if we want to be um, 
really um, stepping into our identity in Christ, understanding, stepping into ministry, all that kind of stuff. Part of that is understanding how does my, my ethnic identity, how does my background, how does that relate to my identity in Christ? How does my identity in Christ fill and change and challenge my, all these identities? And so for me, I had to understand, okay, why, okay, what's my Taiwanese background? Where do I have tensions? Does, do my parents have tensions too with certain people? Because that's going to affect that if I talk to maybe a Chinese person or a person from China, I have to keep this in mind that there might be baggage, there might be ethnic baggages or tensions that Taiwan and China might have, and I have to keep that aware, right? So for all of us here, um, to understand our own background is good for us when, we come, when it comes to relationship and to loving other people. And to really understand how God can transform our own identities too. So that's the first thing. Kind of like the idea of Genesis 10. Second thing is I will reflect and repent of my identity idols. And so um, this requires some reflection to think, okay, what, do I, what am I prioritizing right now? And just to even notice the ways of what you, what you, what you have in your life, what apps you have, what, do you think, what are the things that you put on your walls, what are your posters, what do you post about on Facebook? Um, all these kind of things will show that what do you put your identity How do you dress? What's your, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? And to think, understand that, again, these identities are not necessarily bad, but are they primary? And if they're primary, then they become an idol, and they've taken the throne of God in your heart. So that's, that requires some reflection, or just, you know, spend five minutes just to reflect on what you have prioritized in your life. The third thing is, uh, I will prioritize my identity in God. And this sounds kind of general, and of course it sounds like a nice, um, the nice application point, but I want to really press and challenge you guys that if this is going to be the thing, to actually act upon it, right? If you want to prioritize God, then prioritize that in your schedule. Set aside time for God. Think of ways how God can affect your work life, your family life, your this life, all this kind of stuff. So when I, mean, when I mean say prioritize your identity in God, how does God permeate into all the lives that you have, and how do you put him first within your schedule, within whatever you're doing? Um... And the last thing is, I will listen to someone different from me. We don't live in a time of Genesis 10. We live in a time of post-Matthew 28, post-Acts, right? Of where the church is out there and we're bringing all people, all nations back together, right? And so, um, I think for, as Christians, we need to grow in our ability to navigate culture navigate division, understand that God loves people that are different from us. And that's hard, right? That's hard that people have different cultures, right? Different ways of valuing things. So one of the best ways I, I want to suggest to you guys is to listen to someone. Ask them questions. What's important to you? What's your background? Well, you know, where, where, did, you, where did you grow up? Um, all this kind of stuff, right? Just to listen and to understand the perspective of another person. And that will be able to grow the relationship. Um, yeah. Into, I don't know. <laughs> so those are my application points for us today. I pray that we would all, no matter what part, whatever culture you have, that you'd be able to be refreshed today and know that you know, whatever background you have, Jesus loves you so much and we'd love to be your primary identity. So let's pray together. Father God, we just want to come before you, understanding that you're a holy and good God that you desire to be with us again. And in order to do that, you need to break us. You need to, just like you broke me, God, just like you broke me and you humbled me to understand that I could not get to heaven by myself, that I needed the grace of your son in order to go back, to go, in order to go home. 
So I pray for humbling for all of us. I pray for a breaking of our heart to understand, understand the idols that we placed um, in our hearts, and we repent of that. And not only say no to that, we'd say yes to you, God. I pray that we put you as first and foremost in our lives. Now challenge the ways that we act, the ways that we schedule our, our, our schedules, and to, God, to really just um, to understand you and to put you first everywhere, God. Would you forgive us the ways that we, where we have it and to help us to work towards um, being a redeemed new final tribe that puts our identity in your son, your son alone. We love you so much, Lord. In your name we pray. Thank <laughs> you.